in here like the thermos lodge and so I know an institution it's easy to it's very just like the the cup that uh, Sunim bought me from Korea now is chipped on the edge and things like this and the people don't look after things very well because they're not yours are they you don't feel responsible you think they just belong to the Tongan general and the lay people can provide them when <coughs> when they you know if they if you break them so what is that how you feel well then it's to keep uh, trying to to not take that that's a that's a very worldly very sloppy attitude <clears throat> trying to when you, when you have things uh, when, you, when you're taking care of, of these things like the flask that always use mine one to see where to put it you know where you can put it that it's safe not just put it on the edge of something or where you're going to knock it over with your elbow figure it out where to because they are delicate and <clears throat> one fall onto the floor and they're shattered and then you don't have to replace it do you, you can just say oh we need more flasks tell the stores none to just ask for more flasks and that's that's like in the military it's a kind of <clears throat> pass the buck uh, it does it is an hour everyone will provide for me remember the the attitude of the arms mendicant is is to when we have these things to reflect on them that these are offerings to the Sangha by the lay people they're not requisite the flask the the uh, <coughs> thermal flasks are not requisites to us <coughs> they're they're given to us to make our lives more pleasant <coughs> but if we keep breaking them I'm going to just stop using them I'll have to, we'll just let them all be broken <coughs> and then we won't have any left and you have to see what it's like to not have thermos flasks so don't don't ask uh, on lists for what we need. Don't ask. Don't don't put anything. Uh, don't don't ask for luxuries. Let these things just come and and uh, on the offerings of lay people. But don't have these lists of things that the sangha has to have that we don't really that we can get along without. So that they come as gifts to the sangha rather than requests. Uh, we want this, we want that and then we don't even bother to take care of it <clears throat> the vases also and things like this uh, to try to, to take care of them, keep them clean put them in safe places and Vamravati is so, such a big place it's hard to keep, keep track of it all that if everyone really puts forth that kind of effort be much more impressive and much more response, beautiful response to the generosity shown to us than the taking for granted middle class minds we have. Remember, we have middle class minds. 
the middle class mind is is uh, I I need this and I need that I've got to have this I've got to have that and you have to give it to me I'm just I need this I'm sick I need all kinds of things I don't feel very well today would you bring me a flask of of hot tea did you bring my gruel to me in the morning? Would you do this for me? I want I want mummy and daddy to look after me. I want the best medical treatments. I don't want the urine. We all have minds like that, conditioned minds, that want the best. But that's, that's where the alms mendicant standard is too, to put that in a perspective. We don't, I don't want a, a sangha of uh, spoiled brats. Um, men and boys and girls who, who just uh, expect all kinds of things when they join the sangha. <coughs> or the Nagarikas and the lay people remember this also. The custodians of the things offered to the Sangha. This is to use the, the life here, the, the, the taking care of the buildings, keeping your rooms clean, the uh, respect for the, the workshop, the tools, and the kitchen equipment, and all this. <coughs> it's a part of our life. It's not just. Uh, you know, outside the meditation hall, nothing really counts for anything unless you're sitting in the vipassanini uh, state of mind. I've got to get my practice together. Don't ask me to do the dishes. Don't ask me to drive the car. We need anagarikas to drive cars now. Don't ask me to drive the car because I'm practicing meditation. Or... uh, don't ask me to do the dishes because I'm busy meditating. This is the Vipassanini middle class twit syndrome. <coughs> so, so, step forth and offer. Don't, don't put your practice first, my practice first. Put the, the Sangha first and the Respect and gratitude and unselfishness is more is the way to enlightenment. Not sitting and, and trying to get your practice together. That's not the way to enlightenment. <clears throat> the more you you let go of selfish uh, demand, the the clearer you will become. If there's anything that bungs up the mind and closes off the heart, is selfishness. If you if you have a if your heart is shut off, shut down, it's because you're still thinking of yourself first. <coughs> I really appreciate what the nuns have been doing, taking care of Sister Upala and <coughs> selfless giving, taking care of somebody else. It's uh, something that I found increasingly respectful among the the. Sila Draws and the Anagarikas, their willingness to look after other people.
not thinking, well, it interferes with my practice. Or if they do think that, they're willing to, to let go of that. Not to uh, put their practice first above some, what, is, what is human and, and loving and kind and good. Some of you get really cold-hearted when you think of your practice first. And then the human side, we become, we become kind of vipassanini monsters. Get out of my way, kind of people. Uh, this, this week, uh, just keep practicing like you have, and uh, next week on the 10th, and uh, the following two weeks, in the middle of February, I thought we'd have, we'd dedicate those two weeks uh, as a peace uh, vigil, a continuous peace vigil for uh, peace in the world, especially in the Gulf, because by by next week they'll probably be uh, butchering each other on the land. So, they're all quite eager to get, get going and slaughter each other. And uh, it's the, the Gulf War is is um, getting pretty messy. But uh, what other way can it go? When the when the when the mind is so blinkered, the, what they, they they have no alternatives allowed anymore. It's it's just you know head-on, and the, the fact that uh, human lives are going to be taken, or, and men and women mutilated and maimed for life, and, and uh, Saddam Hussein has now given his troops the uh, permission to use chemical and biological weapons. So, that's always a, a grim, kind of frightening uh, prospect. A desperation forces, like a rat in the corner, you use everything you've got to get out. He's fighting for his life. I heard on the radio that he's uh, he's in a terrible mental status, heavily sedated with tranquilizers wherever he goes. He has to have because <laughs> he's uh, he's so angry and enraged about lack of success of his of the war. I mean, as they have uh, been pretty. Uh, the, the Allied powers have been seemingly quite successful in the, they just, with their air, uh, barrage of airplanes and, but even though he's, uh, he's, uh, certainly, uh, someone easily we can detest and blame, we recognize that, that, uh, that this is a human condition and, and and that um, there are so millions of people involved in it that are basically good uh, beings on both sides. These are the ones that are going to whose blood is going to get spilled. <coughs> so during the two weeks from the tenth of February, that's the next Sunday. <coughs> 
asked Venerable Atapemo to uh, to organize this and have groups like we did before of, of uh, groups that would uh, be in the meditation hall, uh, of course, for several hours at a time, and then and then the uh, next group comes in. So there's always somebody, there's always a group meditating uh, during the 24-hour period uh, in the meditation halls, sending peaceful vibrations, offering the the blessings and goodness of your practice for the welfare of all sentient beings, so that the the what you've gained from this, the goodness, the blessings, the gracious blessings that you've acquired or or received from this retreat so far, you are sharing it out. You're trying to have this attitude of may the the blessings of my retreat and my moral life of my Dedication to the Dhamma, may this be a benefit to all sentient beings and especially to to think of all the people in, involved in the Gulf War. Those on all sides, we're not, we're not favoring, we're not taking sides in the Gulf War. And for Saddam Hussein also, no one can, uh, he's the, uh, lends himself to the stereotype villain role. Remember, villains are also sentient beings. So we, we used to, remember when we used to send Meta to Mrs. Thatcher? Not that she's a villain, but she's certainly uh, someone easy to, to hate. And so we, <laughs> so we, uh, we spread Meta as a way of, of counteracting, counterbalancing that tendency to to just dwell on the negative qualities of any individual being. <coughs> Sending metta and compassion to Saddam Hussein is not uh, blessing what he's doing. We're not saying get on with it, Saddam, and win the war. I think that that the sharing of blessings with Saddam Hussein is going to give him, uh, uh, you know, going to increase his ability to win a war. Certainly, we're not involved on that level. We're involved on a psychic level, a spiritual plane. That he, that that, that may the blessings of our practice, goodness of our life, be a benefit that he may realize. Uh, the right way to live and the right things to do rather than just following his delusions and his uh, passions. Also, we've had during this <coughs> retreat, we've had given you a lot of space and time to, to practice according to the way you feel it most useful for you. And so, now, in the two weeks, I we want to bring the community together more to, to, uh, during these uh, peace vigils. We, we work together. We're doing it not for our practice anymore, but for the welfare of all sentient beings. That is the kind of theme, the, uh, the theme for the retreat. So that we're not doing it for ourselves any goodness and blessings we get from it is due to, to
to the selflessness of what we're doing rather than uh, because we, we are doing it for ourselves. And then the last week, uh, after uh, of February till the 28th, uh, then we can start to kind of, um, you know, gradually um, going back to the ordinary routine of monastic life. So by the 28th, which is the Magha Puja day, everybody will, and of course, Chithurst and Harnam and Devon and the Swiss Vihara and the Italian all the people will be coming here to celebrate the Magha Puja full moon in February. And by that time the Thala should be ready for, supposed to be ready by the 28th. The Thala is coming along very well. It's, uh, everything has been very well, well done and uh, very pleased with the result, and uh, it's nice to uh, talking to Venerable Atapemo the other day about it, and saying how nice it is to have somebody else do it, not have have to do it ourselves. <coughs> so that this uh, we've always had to do all all the repairs and decorations of Chithurst in here and. It's just an ongoing, never-ending uh, thing that one is involved in. <coughs> the sala was never properly finished. The, it was just more or less kind of insulated and painted, but it was never really properly uh, decorated. In the morning room was always a slum of the, the slum of Amravati. <coughs> I avoided going in there. He gave it to the nuns. <laughs> <laughs> Those big ugly stains on the carpet and the, and then the things like all the kind of worst <coughs> furniture and that seemed to drift in there. You know, <laughs> grotty pillows and I kind of blink I go with blinkered vision. I hold my hands over my eyes as I pass through that room. <coughs> Cracked window panes and kind of dirty yellow walls and ceiling. Well, it, it's going to be look very smart. Morning room is is going to uh, be a, a very smart-looking room, and then uh, the back entrance. Uh, we've taken out of the the main hall and put it in the morning room, so that so that we won't have in the like we used to always have problems with people coming in through the back doors and all the heat going out the back doors uh, on the, in the cold winter time. Because some of you are really thoughtless. Like when you come in a building, you can leave. Like my room, it's. I get it nice and warm sometimes. Then somebody comes and they open the door and they stand there and talk to me with the door open. By that time all the heat's gone. Then they go away and I close the door. <laughs> I've become, I used to get quite 
annoyed with it. Now I just accept it as my fate. <laughs> but the uh, in the main in the main room of the sala, there's no direct uh, access from outside now. You, the the porch the, on the front of the building, uh, or you enter the monks enter through the reception room, or the nuns will enter from the uh, if they come from the vihara, their vihara through the through the uh, back entrance into the morning room, uh, and that way you 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 will it'll just be a much much better arrangement. And then I thought the uh, the nuns we we could use that storeroom, not the larder, but the one the other room that's next to the storeroom that goes that you go through you, to the larder, we could uh, fix that up as a kind of uh, room where the nuns could uh, have their robe rack and keep their the, what they need, any kind of essential things. Uh, we could even put a window at the end of it so it wouldn't be just a dark place. And then you could, uh, and you could go there and change or keep your muddy wellies or whatever uh, in there and uh, you could also lock it so I mean you have some when you come to the cellar you have some measure some place to to go to if you want to change your robes or get away from the from the uh, uh, have a place to that you can go in the cellar itself where you're not going that you can uh, kind of feel you're not going to be invaded the morning then you're certainly welcome to use the morning room also not that you you can't use that but you'll have the, but the uh, that room off the morning room where you'll be able to will be just for you and then you can uh, even lock it if you want and then the morning room will uh, the cupboards from the reception from the main hall have we're going to rebuild new uh, new cupboards in the morning room on the on the other side of the wall uh, and that will um, that will have they will be from floor to ceiling and it will have storage capacity and places for hoovers and sweeping equipment brooms and carpet sweepers and first aid uh, cupboards Eventually, we're going to, when uh, in the pl future plans, uh, to uh, to uh, when we build the, the Uposika Hall, I want to put the uh, like the toilets in that monitor. You don't want toilets in the Uposika Hall, so then uh, use that area for for that. And then and then the uh, food storage would be where the showers are. We also uh, have uh, we plan to in the next few years over to build the Uposita Hall where the Dharma Hall is, and that uh, 
this year mainly uh, we're going to just get the plans ready and, and try to get all the necessary permissions and the architectural design and and get it all organized uh, for uh, and then the following year hopefully to start uh, building a proper Buddhist temple realize now that the that where the Dharma Hall is and the meditation room, that area is a, is a really perfect area for a Buddhist temple. The the main shrine would face east because you want the Buddha Rupa to face in a in a Buddhist temple. The the, the main image is always facing the east toward the east. So uh, that situation lends itself to that. It's also from the entrance of Amravati, you look straight up that uh, path, you'd, you'd go right, the first thing you would see really as you looked up from the entrance would be the Buddhist temple. And it would be an Uposika hall, which is a place where ordinations can take place. Upasambada. I would have a steema boundary for ordination. <coughs> Donations have been given for this uh, refurbishing of the of the sala, so it's uh, due to, to mainly Thai people who uh, are eager to to try to uh, increase the uh, the beauty and comfort of our monastery. Kumani, people like that. So. This is a, a sign of, you know, how how people are very eager to to support the sangha. And you think of here in Britain, uh, uh, how well supported we are. It's quite quite amazing, quite moving, really, to to see how eager people are to support a a mendicant order, a Buddhist monastery, both from all levels, from the Asian communities and the the European ones. So then we ask ourselves, are we worthy of this generosity? And uh, it's not to to go around feeling guilty because maybe, uh, I mean, if you think about it too much, about from the self view, you will all end up thinking we're not really worthy of it. But uh, with the vinaya and the the discipline we have, is trying to to really respect the limit. That's one way of making a making yourself uh, uh, impeccable, to determine to live within the limits of the discipline. The, the Patimokha discipline, the ten precepts for the nuns, the eight precepts for the Anagarikas, so that you, you know, really make that a, a moral obligation, <laughs> sense of commitment, and try to be as honest and as and as uh, as, as impeccable, and to be to really develop that sense of personal uh, integrity. Where it's coming from you, you're, it's your determination, it's something within you that is very honest and very trustworthy and very determined to live 
within that restraint. Because the holy life is is a development of, of integrity, which is within one's heart, the goodness and purity of one's heart it develops from there. So we don't want, uh, even though we have high standards on the moral plane, and and that we're we're when you when you look at like at a Padimoka recitation, and I look at the Bhikkhu Sangha sitting there, and I think all these these most of them quite young men who live life of strict celibacy and and moral discipline and uh, something in me really respects that you think this is wonderful to see young men who've t- left the, all the kind of worldly pleasure because the world is very tempting isn't it with all it possibilities for exciting sensory indulgences and yet we find yourself in a community of men and women who have given that up to develop the holy life and that inspires me it makes me have great hopes see the possibility for humanity I can see that that the human condition is one that can be developed and uh, it's not, I'm not a cynic. I have, I'm now quite, I'm not optimistic either. I'm not just trying to to think uh, in, a, in a nice way about everything. But I see it, I see it in myself, I see it in you. Uh, that possibility, that potential, that purity, that ability to, to lift yourself up and to develop wisdom and to be free from ignorance. At a time now where where this is where one can only you know if if we weren't involved in this practice here, I think we'd all be quite cynical i have a I have a cynical streak in in any way It's easy for me to be cynical about things uh, and if i and if I had put forth if I hadn't put forth the effort and developed this life. I'd probably be a real embittered old man by now. If I hadn't been a monk. <coughs> now, if you met me, Robert Jackman, age 57, kind of, what a, what a depressing old bot. He certainly missed the boat somewhere. <laughs> so that the the life, of the holy life, does have its, you know, has its powerful effect in the, the fact that that a community can, a human, a community of human beings can uh, develop. I mean, this is where don't don't. Uh, be hard on yourselves because it takes time and patience to develop, to cultivate this way. It's not you don't just suddenly shave your head and find yourself a, a, a Buddhist saint. I wish, wish that we could do that. My impatient nature would, 
I'm not just shaving the head, putting on the yellow robe, going through the Upasampada procedure, and suddenly you're transformed into this pure being, full of loving kindness and wisdom. But we know it, it's hard work, and, and you have to go through, you have to put up with a lot, you have to endure, and mainly endure your own mind, <coughs> your karma. You have to endure, not so much the things around are usually quite, quite nice. I find, like in Thailand, the, the forest monasteries, I really liked the forest monasteries. They weren't, they weren't hard to endure. I liked living in those forest monasteries. And I liked the, generally, I liked most of the monks and the lay people, the northeastern Thai lay people were wonderful. Very, very pleasant, very warm-hearted people to live with. That wasn't, on it. That was certainly not hard to endure. That was a privilege. But what was really miserable was me, my mind. <laughs> so that even the, even when the food was bad and the weather was too hot, that was minor, minor discomfort compared to the uh, to the the karmic creations of my. Uh, my mind. So I could make myself totally miserable over nothing. And, but one endured, one learned how to to meditate and and that kind of suffering and uh, uh, despair that one <clears throat> would, would experience so often was the very stuff that keeps you going toward realization. Keep, you keep determining to, to bear with and to, to understand suffering and to realize non-suffering. Here in England, I think of my life here. You know, you go, you go some places in London like Tottenham and kind of dreary, depressing suburbs of London and, and there are rows of kind of terrace, depressing terrace houses and it would be awful to have to live in these in these in these places. And then we, you know, here in England we live in these very kind of lovely spots here in uh, Chiltern Hills and Chitters is a little kind of paradise of a place. And then Devon and in uh, Arnhem, Arnhem, another gorgeous environment to live in and the suffering that goes on in Harlem is is definitely mentally made <laughs> it's hard to blame here, here you get you can find fault with the buildings can't you <laughs> people I don't like the buildings that I'm about to I want, I want to go to Chitters I like the buildings better, prettier. But actually, when you get used to these buildings, they're quite nice. And uh, they're quite all right, you know. Nothing wrong with the buildings. <laughs> Except your aesthetic taste, you know. You, 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 have, you have to come to terms with the fact that uh, 
you know, actually the environment around here is very beautiful. And uh, we're very lucky to have uh, buildings like this that we can do anything we want with. We can tear them down, build them up, rearrange them, and this is like, like one of those uh, Lego sets. <laughs> you can just do whatever you want with the place. The Chitters, uh, of course the building is, is beautiful, but you can't do very much else with it. Uh, you've got to keep it like that, which is all right too, with the advantages of having uh, these type of buildings is that they're, they'll never be listed as uh, cultural uh, treasures. <laughs> <laughs> So we can, uh, like with the Uposita Hall, we we can build, uh, we can just tear down the existing Dharma Hall and Meditation Hall, where the meditation room, just take them down and build uh, 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 whatever type of temple we, we like. We have to get permission from the council, but already, you you know, you have the permission, it's just on, on other things, because the the uh, you, the uh, actual spaces involved and that are already allotted for use in in that way. So you, you, here at Amravati, you have you don't have any problem with accommodations and with with uh, building things because the whole place is uh, you can use every bit every one of these buildings as a as a living accommodation. <coughs> you can use the building in any way you want to. <coughs> for living, or for classrooms, for meditation halls, or whatever. So you have a tremendous kind of range here of usage for the, the, this complex of buildings. Then in Devon, you can, you can suffer because it's, it's only a tiny little cottage and you get and you can get, uh, if you don't like living in close proximity with with people and in a tiny little cottage, you can make problems about that too. Or you can make problems about living in a community like this where it's so kind of spread out. If you like the tiny little cottage scene, and then coming here, you think, oh, I was so happy in Devon, everything was so kind of cozy. Lay people come, like with, when you're in Devon, you have this kind of cozy, more intimate friendliness with the lay people. You're sitting around in little rooms and, and uh, it's a much more kind of cozy atmosphere. It's pretty, uh, you know, sweet type of scene. And you don't have to deal with like, like if you had. I've often wondered what it'd be like to live with only like a, another bhikkhu and an anagarika or a couple of bhikkhus, and wonder what that's like. It's been so long. <laughs> I'm always in vast oceans of people, and. <laughs> Probably could be arranged. 
with the nuns. The nuns, I think, go through stages of where, oh, we love chitters, we don't like Amravati. And then, oh, we don't like chitters, we like Amravati. And it's changed quite a few times, I think, over the years. I think Amravati was the Siberia for the nuns at first. Because <coughs> the chitters, it's a cozy little scene there. A little cottage in Latvish's. Very pleasant uh, environment, but the, what we're we're aiming at, to do with our practice is to is to not make preferences, to be able to be and respond to the place we're in in the right way. Like when you're down at Chitters, be there, do it the way they do it. Don't think, well, with Amravati we do it this way, and Ajahn Samedo says. And, you go tell the Venerable Ananda today, well, at Amravati, Ajahn Samedo lets us do this. And <laughs> that kind of is really childish, isn't it? So, I mean, when you're, when you're down at, when you're at Chitter, then, then just learn to operate within the limits and style of that place. And when you're here, operate within the limits and style of this place. Because you're reflecting on it. You're not trying to to make things that, that each place has to be exactly the same. We've got to recognize that conditions are different. Zamravati is a, is a big place. You've got to live with a lot of people. There's a lot to do. Uh, it's a large community. And this is the way it is. This is, this is life at Amravati is like this. At Chithurst, it's... Uh, <coughs> They, for the nuns, it's a, a nice little cottage in a lovely situation, a beautiful forest, and so forth, so that you you can appreciate that without attaching to it, without thinking, I've got to have this and I don't want the other, because that's a defilement of the mind, isn't it? To always think about what you prefer, uh, rather than doing what is appropriate and what is suitable in the, in where you happen to be. Preferences and their feelings, they're certainly not dumping them on me and, and certainly not being uh, foolish about it. So I want to uh, express my gratitude for, for your willingness to work with your with the, 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 your feelings and your opinions and views. That's that's what that's the important thing. That's what we're here to do. But in England, we we do have all four of the monasteries are quite lovely in lovely settings. You don't have to live in the you know, grotty part of London or in kind of ugly, miserable place. And these. Uh, England is a very beautiful country, so you, you, you have a lot of uh, just naturally beautiful things around. So that the, the uh, and the, the government, the society is a tolerant and benevolent uh, country to live in. So the misery we create, ask yourself, who's creating this misery? Or oh, you can blame somebody else and you say, well, that person, that monk is trying to 
dominate me. That monk trying to thinks he's better than I am, and it's his fault. That nun, and even if they are being uh, silly about things, you needn't suffer from it. That's their problem. Because if if a monk or a nun is is uh, you know being obstreperous or difficult or foolish, then then uh, that's their problem. That, that's their suffering. We don't, we don't need to suffer over the way somebody else happens to be. We can, we can dedicate the, uh, the uh, goodness of our lives for their welfare. We can try to help them if we can. But to spend our lives, our time here hating them for being the way they are is a waste, is missing the whole point, isn't it? We've missed the whole point if we we spend time just hating somebody because they uh, because we don't like what they what they are what they're doing. I always like to to think of it. like my life in Thailand. I was thinking how grateful I am for the opportunity to live a moral life, such a, a good a kind of beautiful moral life that was made available to me by becoming a monk. And uh, then I felt gratitude, say, to Lumpur Cha for accepting me as his uh, disciple. I'm very grateful for, for that. This is how I would t- try to reflect, rather than on whether I liked this place or that place or this monk or that monk. You know, it would certainly have feelings and preferences of that nature, but but uh, that's not what I wanted to to practice. I didn't want to practice having preferences, liking and disliking people, and and uh, and complaining about things. I, as I've said before, I was a, quite a I had a, quite a complaining tendency. But uh, through this this way of reflecting and determining one's life, one, one can get outside that ten, that that uh, habit of complaining and grumbling. Like here with with Amavati, is, is develop that that reflection on the four requisites, like we do in the morning, and the opportunity to practice the Dhamma and to to live a moral life and. And uh, to be supported by as an honest mendicant in a non-Buddhist country, rather than just complaining because of you don't like the way they do this or you don't like the way they do that or or this person isn't uh, pulling their weight or you have doubts about that senior monk, senior nun, or only. Grizzling that can go on in the mind, really, really try to see it, know it as as something to not follow, and develop a, a, a heart of gratitude. Just say, how you know how wonderful it is to be encouraged to live a moral life. Make that the the important issue that you have, you, you're encouraged and supported in your moral endeavors and in your practice of meditation. And then the, the uh, 
lay communities that are so generous to us and respect what we're doing. These kind of reflections open our hearts up. Your heart opens up. It's with that, with gratitude, the, the grateful heart that you that you that your practice really develops. I didn't first six years of my monastic life. I didn't have much gratitude. I was dedicated vipassanini. My practice, and I did. I was really dedicated to practice, but I just ended up in kind of kind of this miserable. Uh, the heart was shut off. There's nothing glowing inside me. It was just, you know, discipline, and uh, and it just made me it just it made me feel very uh, tense and dull. And it was when I started reflecting on on all that had been offered to me, and uh, on the teacher Ajahn Chah, that I suddenly <coughs> felt suddenly this. Beautiful sense of kadanyu, katavati, gratitude. Then I found my practice so easy after that, so much more easy to do. Because it was coming from my heart, from love and joy, not from me trying to get something and make something and happen and get rid of something. Because that's, that's, that's a drudgery. That's just nothing but drudgery, isn't it? Me trying to get something out of this, trying to get rid of my faults, trying to make myself into an enlightened being, keeping all the rules and then trying to to think that by keeping all the rules and practicing, doing a lot of sitting, that I'm going to get somewhere. And you end up, your heart is uh, is bound by chains, iron chains of selfishness. It's grey and bleak in your heart. Even if you're with the best teacher in the world in the most beautiful monastery, if you're doing it for any selfish reason, you'll end up with a with a dreary mental, dreary emotional state. One thing, like with Lung Po Cha, I used to wonder was he was such a joyful uh, human being that he recognized that at first you could think, well, their life is so suppressed, you know, all these rules and and uh, this discipline, and you know, one could uh, criticize it from the American conditioned mind, the American conditioned mind. Oh, well, I live in California. I've been a beatnik. Bordering on, I was, I was pre-hippie, beatnik. I was a uh, bohemian, free spirit. I was uh, a re- rebel. I loved the uh, the idea of freedom and to do what I wanted and to thumb my nose at the society and, to, and I liked that kind of rebellious image. I wasn't bound by moral discipline and the kind of boring old conventions of my parents. So when I went to, became a monk, when I became a monk in Thailand, here I was in the most disciplined situation in the world. Couldn't think of it much getting more disciplined than the forest monastery in northeast Thailand. 
you can't do this, you can't do that. And you, everything was, you know, to learn how. They didn't like the way I walked. They didn't like the way I carried my bag. They didn't like the way I ate my food. They didn't like this. And all on my back, they're saying, you, you, got, you can't walk like that. You, you, know, you look too aggressive. Walk with my my yaw, my bag. I carry it like this, you know. And I said, you can't do that. It looked like you're carrying a, a club. You're like you're going to hit somebody. Okay. This is hopeless. <laughs> but they, <laughs> but they. Uh, Life, even though it could, it it could seem oppressive at first. You kept looking at Dajan Shah. You think, that man is obviously is not oppressed. <laughs> uh, he he's obviously liberated being. He's a happy human being. One of the the first happy human being I I ever remember. I probably met them, but uh, they didn't leave that strong an impression. But Dajan Shah did. This man is is truly happy, loving kind of human being. And he's a Buddhist monk. And he keeps all these rules, and he practices, and yet he looks like that. He's, he's obviously, uh, it obviously works. Well, some of the monks in the monastery look like some of you, you know, down, <laughs> gray visage, and Miserable-looking creatures. Some of the bhikkhus, admittedly, look at them. Look, look, they've been monks, and they are. Look at them; they look absolutely dreadful. <laughs> but then you, <laughs> but then you, then you look at Ajahn Chah, and you think, well, he, you know, he's, he's, he's a result of this practice. So that gives you a great kind of uh, feeling of. Of, you know, you you like you see that 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 a human being like uh, has lived this life, and the result of having lived this life properly and well is 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 a beautiful result. It's something you feel you feel once you like. I think with m- most of us who who know Lung Po Cha, once you once you kind of we used to say he casts out this net and tra- entraps you. He throws out this net and you can't get away. <laughs> and uh, he said, some, just to have this saying, you know, well, somebody, some new Westerner came to the monastery and, and Ajahn Chah threw out his net and he can't leave now. <laughs> because I think that, that goodness and purity and, and uh, virtuousness and wisdom are just so attractive to us. You know, it's just so beautiful to see that when you find somebody that embodies these these virtues, you, you just there's no no other thing to do. Why why leave? I couldn't think of any reason for leaving. Not that I always wanted to stay, but I couldn't think of any good reason to leave. <laughs> <laughs> so so that's and uh, Lung Po Cha certainly wasn't hanging on to me. He wasn't saying, you've got to stay. And, and uh, he, you know, he could be, sure he'd be quite happy without me. But it was uh, just his, uh, one I felt very uh, honored 
and very grateful to, to live with somebody like that. And Ajahn Chah was a very human teacher. He wasn't he wasn't a a goody goody kind of person. He wasn't silly or foolish. He was uh, he wasn't sentimental. He had he was a very earthy kind of human being. He had a wonderful sense of humor, very practical, very real uh, uh, kind of human being. 